Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, passengers have bad times at the El Royale. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomason. My life pod is somehow opened. Oh, that's stiff. I'm just going to live for a year getting drunk and eating all the time, but I am still svelte as ever. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and excuse me, my accoutrement is saving my place in the podcast. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> but welcome everybody to the Double Edge Double Bill, um, which is a show where uh, Adam and I, every week, uh, we talk about a good and a bad movie we picked at the end of the previous episode, based around a general topic, and uh, we decided, um, in honor of Knock at the Cabin is coming out this week, uh, which is a movie from M. Night Shyamalan, which is about a family that is stuck inside of a cabin when a group of intruders come in and basically uh, try to force them to uh, follow a certain apocalyptic cult-like prophecy. It's, it's very interesting, and especially in that, Adam, I actually did something I, I rarely talk about on the show. I read a book? Yeah, right, dude. If it's not a fucking, like, a <laughs> Linux manual, I don't believe it. <laughs> but no, I did read the book that that movie is based on, and I can abide by, at least per the book, it is sort of a bottle film, but... You know, bottle films, we should probably mention, like, what exactly this is, because even, Adam, when I pitched this to you, you were a bit confused as to the term. You had never heard the term before. That is correct, sir. Yes, you are right. Well, uh, for those uninitiated, uh, bottle film actually comes from, it's a term that originated in episodic television, where basically uh, there would be certain episodes, maybe you've seen, like, on a sitcom or a TV drama even, whatever, where, you know, especially when they had 24 episodes to fill up, there were certain ones where it's like, let's make something cheap and where it doesn't rely on every single actor in the cast being in there. So they would create the bottle episode, where basically it would take place in one singular location, like a room of some sort, and it would involve maybe a couple of the main cast, but not like everybody. So it would basically, you know, you've seen, like I remember there was like, a, say, a Parks and Rec episode where that happened, where most of the episode was Ron and Leslie stuck inside of like one part of the Parks and Rec department building. And there's been, it's a recurring trip like you're at least aware of like that kind of scenario that's happening plenty of things you've seen oh yeah for sure i just didn't know there was like a predetermined term for it but yeah it happens all the time it's i mean like you said most in television you tend to notice a lot but i guess sort of in the way we're doing it is you know movies that take place in kind of one location so they're saving the money on not having to well Kind of, maybe not in our bad feature, but they're saving money by not having to move location and stuff like that. Well, yeah, and even arguably in our good feature because they build a rather elaborate location <laughs> with various different rooms and stuff. Um, That's but true. I mean, at the same time, like I think that concept, especially in film, is like so fascinating. Especially happens a lot with indie movies where you can have like you know say, oh, I only have access to like this one location, so we're going to shoot most of it. Like even you know Kevin Smith with Clerks. Right, yeah. Clerks. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest examples. Or Evil Dead. Right. 
that's true, uh, the Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, stuff like that, where it takes place basically in just, like, one singular sort of, like, household or, like, all the surrounding area, stuff like that. We opened it up, especially uh, with our, our two uh, films. They definitely take place in, like, multiple rooms and sort of, like, it spans around. There's, like, flashbacks and stuff, especially in one of ours, to, like, what uh, sort of people were doing outside the spot location. But do you think that's, like, a, an interesting idea to kind of, like, limit the location of a movie because you think that sprouts a lot of like interesting uh kind of like conflict or potential storytelling avenues that you wouldn't expect from like one with sprawling locations it, it lends itself to sort of maybe smaller contained character study or character mm-hmm. pieces more than you know these big wide open sprawling landscape heavy location change things with the one location and you have to sort of rely on your story to make it work sort of that necessity is the mother invention thing we talk about on the show right especially in the independent movies but the two movies we're covering today like we mentioned uh, aren't necessarily uh super low budget affairs uh because uh we picked at the end of our last episode as we usually do um the two movies the bad and the good pick we'll be talking about the bad pick first with Passengers, which was Adam's pick, and then we'll be talking about my good pick of Bad Times the El Royale. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, rip off that band-aid, Adam. Let's talk about Passengers. We boarded the Avalon with a destination. 120 years hibernation means we'll wake up in a new century on a new planet. But a year ago, everything changed. Hello? Anybody here? Hello? Do you know what's going on? Nobody else is awake. I think something went wrong with the hibernation pods. We woke up 90 years too soon. This can't be happening. We have to go back to sleep. We can't. Something's wrong. What do we do now? Do you trust me? So, Passengers uh, came out December 21st, 2016 uh, from director Morton Tildum. Um, And you might remember this movie as the one where it was like, oh yeah, it was Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence. Um, And you might have seen it given it made about $300 million. Uh, It cost about $150, so kind of broke even. And um, Adam, why don't you uh, detail for everybody like a plot synopsis for uh, your bad pick, and then uh, talk about why you picked it as a bad pick. Okay, basic plot synopsis is it's a pilgrimage trip in space to a new sort of homestead planet it's literally called homestead two it's about five thousand passengers that are taking this trip that's like 120 years long to get there they're all in deep space deep sleep cryo whatever the fuck you want to call it and uh one of them wakes up and it's chris pratt and he wakes up 90 years too early uh so he's trying to figure out what's going on he tries to put himself back to sleep he tries to you know potentially commit suicide and that he sees Jennifer Lawrence's character sleeping in a tube, and he fights for about a week, maybe, on whether or not he should wake her up, basically damning her to death as well. And uh, he does. And then you get to see him fall in love. And uh, that's basically it. Uh, You know, there's a couple of other little bit of shenanigans that happen, but it really doesn't matter because they fall in love. And uh, I picked this movie because of the synopsis I just gave. Uh, It's horrible. 
you know, whether or not you like the production design of it, which I do not, it looks about like every other science fiction movie you've ever seen. They got the rotating room from 2001. They got the lavish hotel area from like Fifth Element. They've got the bar from The Shining, speaking of... They got the bar from The Shining, 100%. Yeah, so it's just a movie about a horrible person who doesn't want to die alone, so he damns somebody else to death and then basically gaslights through the whole movie to the point to where she ultimately just forgives him and she gets the chance to, you know, go back to sleep and stuff and she does it because she loves him so much. It's fucking stupid. Well, yeah, um, I had not seen this because uh, I'd heard a lot of bad word of mouth, mainly based around a lot of what you were talking about, Adam, and I think the frustrating thing is I don't think it's a terrible idea for the movie just based on the very basic concept of it in terms of, like, oh, there's, like, these two people that wake up and uh, one of them has made this horrible decision. And I think there's a fascinating sort of, like, sci-fi curiosity you could have with that idea. Uh, especially, I think, the problem is that the execution of it is, one, from Chris Pratt's perspective, which I think is a mistake. And two, more crucially, they try to make him extremely, like, sympathetic without much of any kind of, like, questioning, like you mentioned. Because, like, uh-huh. there's a point, because a big thing you also didn't mention is that, like, when she initially wakes up, he does not tell her that he woke her up. He says, like, right. oh, yeah, yeah I yeah. woke up, like, a year ago and your thing failed. And I I don't know, just, like, it's a sad, tragic victim of circumstance kind of thing. And when the reveal ends up happening, she does find out, courtesy of uh, Michael Sheen, um, as uh, the bartender robot, who, for the record, I think is, like, the highlight of this movie. I think he has, like, the best bits of this, with yeah, like, I think his design and also his performance, I think, is genuinely quite good. But when Lawrence finds out, that should really be the kickoff to this being a true horror movie, I think. Because, like, the way that I would probably frame all of this is to, like, have it from her perspective. She wakes up, she sees him there, and she initially is under the assumption as much as the audience is as well. Like, oh, no, they both woke up uh, accidentally, this is tragic. Then that reveal happens, and then in a good movie, you would have her try to fucking do something to get away from this guy, and maybe still save the ship like they do at the end, but more importantly, being trying to save the ship while also he is chasing her down. It's just like, if I can't have you, no one can. That's the good version of this movie. The bad version that we got is one where all that shit happens, and she finds this out, and then by the end of the movie, she literally says the words, I can't live without you. Fuck the fuck off with that. (laughs) And then they have the monologue when Andy Garcia, for some reason, walks in the room, and we lived a beautiful life together. And all this bullshit. And you're like, dude, fuck this. Like, it's such bullshit. It is such bullshit. Yeah, like you said, I can't live without you garbage. How long is she mad at him? A couple weeks, maybe? Maybe you get the impression. That's the other thing with the time. They don't really explain, except for like three different intervals, how much time has gone by, which is fine. I guess you don't really need to know, but at the same time. So what, she's mad at him for a couple days, a week, and then like, all the sh- Lawrence Fishburne wakes up, so the shit hits the fan, and then blah, blah, blah. Talk about another wasted actor. The Lawrence Fishburne thing is where this movie turns from, like, offensive to just offensive and fucking stupid. Like, that's... We'll, we'll talk about it more. It's fucking dumb. That's the thing, though. This whole movie, it's... Like, I agree with you. I, I thought that, too, when the first, when I first even heard what the movie's about. I'm like, oh, this could be... Like, if they do something fun with it, it could really work. And blah, blah, blah. They don't. They give you the most bland, like, dumb version of it. I totally agree with, like, if she was, like, I'm done with you and trying to get away with them, and he was basically stalking her around the ship and shit. Like, that would be fucking 
terrifying and would really work. I'm not going to do that because it's mega heartthrob Chris Pratt at the time. You're, that's not going to happen. Now it wouldn't because of Jeebus. It's such a poorly executed attempt at like a romance story. Like that's the ultimately the problem with this movie. It, it's not even a sci-fi thriller or anything like that or or sci-fi suspense. It's a, it's a stupid romance movie cloaked in a better sci-fi movie. Like they might as well be from a small town and, and he originally lived there and she came home for Christmas. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's the local like handyman. Like that, it's so ridiculous. But to be fair, that that would also be very interesting if you did that and no one else was there. Just like I'm the only one who lives here now. Everyone else is gone. They're sleeping. I got left behind. <laughs> oh look, I'm sorry. I do have one friend, Kevin Sorbo's here. <laughs> oh, they, they, oh, they, watch out! Don't step over Kirk Cameron's corpse now. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I just think the the frustrating thing is also the factor of like these two stars who we haven't really talked, like we've mentioned a couple movies with Chris Pratt, but before sort of his rise to stardom that came post like Guardians of the Galaxy. And we haven't really talked about Jennifer Lawrence at all. And I think seeing the two of them in this movie, I think I get two distinct different things. One, that, you know, I like Chris Pratt in certain things. Like I like him as Star-Lord. I liked him on Parks and Rec, certain things like that. This was, like, the year where it was, like, this and Magnificent Seven, where it was, like, oh, this guy is just not, like, an actual movie star. Like, he's just, like, no, a right. dude who got, like, hunky, but it's, like, you're not, you don't have, like, movie star charisma. You can be, like, a funny, affable guy, but you can't be, like, a, a movie star to any degree. Because when you see him, like, specifically, like, so alone for most of this, like, first third of a movie, it's, like, you can't handle this at all. You are so bad at this. He wor- Chris Pratt works really well in an ensemble that he's not one of the main focuses. Except for, like, Guardians. Okay, I'll give him that. But it's because that movie's such a, like, a goofy movie. But, like, Parks and Rec, he, was, he worked really well. Even, like, Magnificent Seven, obviously. But that movie's fucking not good anyways. I would argue he is the worst part of that movie to me. I know he is. He is. But, I mean, if he's not playing silly, he, he has no range. Like, this... You know, the Jurassic World movies, Magnificent Seven, uh, that one he did, I forget even the name of it, on Amazon. The oh, The Tomorrow was, War? Uh, yes, that one. Uh, he plays the same sort of dude who's supposed to be, like, smoldering, and it just doesn't work. Like, it doesn't work. He's just not... Nah, I don't buy it for a second. And especially, like, I think in the movie that I basically pitched earlier, the best kind of person would be someone who kind of looks like a Chris Pratt but ends up being, like, able to pull off, like, the twisted element of it. Like, I would say a Tom Hardy, maybe, even a Michael Fassbender, Nicholas Holt, even, I think could work. Those two, obviously, like, the X-Men connection with Lawrence kind of being, <laughs> would influence that. But I think yeah. like, you need somebody who's, like, capable of, like, that inner darkness, even in, like, this version of the movie, that kind of, like, sadness that's there when he's, like, alone. That Penn Badgley guy from that Netflix show that everybody loves. Which Netflix show? Like you or whatever, where he's this crazy oh. stalker. Okay, but, I'm aware that you. I haven't seen it, but yeah, um. no. You know who would really work though, honestly, just because I just got done again finishing the third season and it's so good. Um, fucking uh, oh god, Will Graham from Hannibal. Oh, Hugh Dancy. Oh, yeah, Hugh Dancy. That's interesting. Yes, um, he'd be able to grow a better scruff than the fake one Chris Pratt has. Oh, it's so this bad. It's it is so, so terrible. It's like he has a fucking Brillo pad on his face. It, just, it doesn't match his hair at all whatsoever. And the wig is so poorly, like the long wig is so fake too. Yeah. 
Like, it just looks terrible. Oh, look, to put dark circles under his eyes, because that means he's been emaciated. Which, wow, he's still in pretty damn good shape. Yep. Yeah, he doesn't look at all like either Fat Pratt or Super Skinny Pratt. He's just like, oh, I'm still kind of me. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> I'm not going to actually gain any more weight. Um, but the the bummer also is that, like, I think Lawrence actually would work in a better version of this movie. Because I think she especially sells, like, when she finds out about all this, that sort of, like, horror that she has. Because I think, like, she, at this point, was sort of, like, in the middle still of, like, post-Hunger Games, still kind of in the doldrums of her X-Men period, just kind of being in, like, that and also a bunch of David O. Russell movies. It's a bummer, because, like, she, I think, is genuinely a very talented actress, and she just kind of caught, caught up in that weird sort of popularity storm that she had after like silver Lang's playbook where everyone was like oh you fell down at the oscars and you eat pizza you're just like us you're just a ditzy girl and it's like no she actually has a lot of range and she's very if you've seen any recent interviews she's done with like her causeway movie she's a very smart person who actually has a lot of like thoughts about like how she should like move forward with her career and that causeway movie i chased this movie with that much better use of her and various other people in that movie um, and just here you can tell it's like it's her just being used quite frankly for her looks and her acting is like secondary in the eyes of like Morton Tildum and everyone else involved. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm not like necessarily a huge fan of hers, but I do think she's got talent. Just unfortunately post Hunger Games, it was mostly just junk. I mean, like you said, you had the X-Men movies, which she doesn't give a shit in any of those movies. It's so obvious. By the time you get to... I would say by, by, like, Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix, she is, like, on the outs with them. Oh, way on the outs. Like, like Dark Phoenix, it looks like she's reading cue cards. And she literally gets killed off in, like, the first third of that movie because she's like, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah, right. I am done. Which I just saw something that, like, the rumor is she might potentially be signed on to redo the role. I, I hope that's not the case. Based on every single interview I've heard from her actually saying things, it doesn't seem like that's what she wants I, to do. I hope not. If she does, hopefully it's just like a cameo in the new Deadpool or whatever. Because that's what I want. I want multi-universe bullshit. No, that's what no, I, I want. No, that's, no, that's what the but, world wants, Adam. It has to happen. No. Yep, right. Uh, I do think in a better version of this, she'd be a lot better. Like, think of her, like, the horror she goes through in, like, Mother throw something like that in this you'd be like oh my god especially with some dude like gaslighting going crazy i will say she does do one of my favorite things in the movie where she just kicks the living shit out of a sleeping chris pratt yeah good she's whooping his ass yeah at the same time you know i've seen this once before this and i completely forgot how it ended big shocker to the point where i'm like oh at least they're going to kill him oh okay wait she saved him oh he's gonna die in the thing Okay, no, no, no. Okay, wait, though. He's going to die and she'll be in the pod. Okay, cool. Oh, there he is. He's at the bar. Oh, no, she stayed. Like, it's so dumb. It's so dumb and bad. Like I said, her monologue when she's reading it, because I think it's supposed to be, like, her book she wrote or whatever. Because she's, like, a journalist, yeah, and she says, like, that's some of the best I've ever written. There's no, like, inflection. She doesn't care. She doesn't care. She's so tuned out of this. She's talked many times in, like, recent interviews about how tuned out she was around this time, and I get it. She feels just, like, overexhausted. Oh, yeah, well, dude, because she was in everything. Like, she was popping up everywhere. Uh, much like he was, really, at the time. Um, I mean, her even more so, though, because, I mean, she was starring in two major franchises. Um, well, I guess he is, too, technically, Guardians of Jurassic, but who gives a fuck? Uh, but the thing is, it's like, if they would have at least given us like interesting set design or costume design or anything like that, there might have been something in this movie to sort of 
hold on to. Like, yeah, the story was stupid, but fuck, like, how cool did the spaceship look? And huh? you don't even get none of that. I mean, there's literally a shot from basically Danny Boyle's Sunshine, where they're sitting in that room and they'll get real close to the star. Yep. I mean, it's 100% that. You're like, oh, wow, I've seen this before. Stealing from a much better movie. <laughs> and not also not helped by the fact that, like, just, I get the idea, like, oh, this is, like, uh, sort of, like, attempting to be a space cruise liner. But all of, like, the set design and also Thomas Newman's score instantly just brought up, like, oh, this is Wally. If they were, like, on that ship for more than like, the four months they were supposed to be, they would turn to, like, the big folks from Wally. And it just yep. feels like there's, it's even, like, to that nth degree, just, like, stealing from better sci-fi movies. And not well. No, not well at all. Like you said, the set design, when they're, like, in the main courtyard, it looks like a fucking shopping. Like, it doesn't even look unique. It looks like a, like the mall, like they're in the Mall of America. Right. And by the way, where did he get a fucking tree? Like, they show him drawing out sketches, and all of a sudden he plants a tree in the middle of the courtyard. I mean, I I don't know, Adam. That's the, a question that Lawrence Fishburne asks when he first wakes up. Like, who planted this tree here? Which, it's like I said, that moment, I had, like, I was vaguely aware that there were more people than at least these two in this movie. That there was, like, some turn where, like, there at least another person woke up. I did not know uh-huh. it was Lawrence Fishburne, which was very surprising yep. to me. And also, more importantly, I did not know how fucking even more dumb this guy because before like we said it's bad and it's offensive but at least just like well this is at least a bizarre miscalculation as opposed to it goes into full-on dumb bad territory when lawrence fisherman wakes up as like the captain he's just like oh let me exposit a bunch of things to you oh no i have <laughs> hibernation disease oh no oh i'm gonna die after my exposition dump and the pod can't save me despite the fact that chris pratt nearly dies in space and the pod's able to save him just fine Mm-hmm. How? Does that make any fucking sense? Nope. Doesn't make any sense. Not at all. And then they go through this whole giant, like, we gotta figure out where the the glitch started. What do we look for? Something big and something broken. Really? And they show, like, the engine room that looks like a city, basically. We're just like, oh, uh-huh. we gotta find it somehow. And it's like, yeah, we gotta find something big and broken. And even, like, they, they do, like, really bad exposition, too, about just, like, well, why don't we go into, like, where the cabin quarter is? Because that was locked off before. Now we can go in, like, get somebody else. No, they wouldn't be able to get out in time. We gotta do this ourselves. And, like, I know. especially when, like, that is, I think, supposed to be the motivation for her to realize, like, oh, no, wait, I love him because he takes charge and he ends up trying to save the ship and nearly sacrifices himself. Which, like, fuck off. The best reaction she could have from this is, like, well, I'm glad you made that sacrifice. I'm not gonna try and save you, but I thank you for saving me. Toodaloo <laughs> into the vacuum of space, asshole. <laughs> Well, way to prove you're not an actual total monster, I guess. But see you later. Right. So fuck you. Bye. Yeah, still, goodbye. I'll um, fuck the Michael Sheen robot. He seems nice. Right. Absolutely. Doesn't matter if he's got a donger or not. We'll figure it out. You know, I can innovate. I have a lot of time. <laughs> right. We can build him one. Faster, stronger. <laughs> yep. How does that fucking tree become a forest in like 78 years? And also, wouldn't that mess with any of the tech if, like, an overgrown forest is growing there? Yeah, with a waterfall somehow? Like, I don't right. know much about, you know, botany or anything like that, but I'm pretty sure it takes a little bit longer than, like, 78 years for an entire sort of agricultural system to develop. No, Adam, it was really fueled by their love. By the way, That's with no fuel, no, no soil, or anything... But I'm yet, not hearing you, Adam. I can't hear you over my tears crying about their yeah, beautiful their love. love. They had a beautiful life together. 
ultimately. Right. Beautiful life together. I heard that. I heard that they had a beautiful life together. Beautiful life. Good for them. Andy Garcia got to witness the end of it. Yeah, that was really the moment when she ended up saying, just like, I can't live without you, where, like, I went into full-on, like, jerk-off motion, like, fuck off. Oh, I know, I was watching this, and uh, my wife came out and watched most of it with me, and she was like, this is not terrible. She's like, I don't get the, because she'll look at things that are get, like, horribly, like, shit on, and, and she'll find the good in it, you know, which is good, like, that's the good nice to have a positive outlook i i'm way too jaded for that uh but once that part happened even she i look at her she rolled her eyes she's like oh god <laughs> like i know she's like and then by the end she's like she's like and then they wrote themselves into a quarter because then it's like if he dies yeah all right you expect that good he deserves it but they end up together yeah you expect that she's like or if they would have gotten the pod together somehow i was like that's honestly what i expected the first time i saw it that they would somehow figure out a way to hibernate together a la, like, Fifth Element type bullshit. Yeah, you, they wrote themselves into a fucking corner with this ending. Like, they, the thing is, what he did is so terrible, but the fact that that line, I can't live without you, is uttered, then whatever you do in the end, it doesn't feel earned. It feels like this is bullshit and stupid. Yeah, it feels definitely like, even as, like, bad as, like, the earlier two acts are, that third act feels very studio noted. Oh, it's gotta be. Just even the fact, like, Lawrence Fishburne showing up and just, like, having his exposition disease... And then just being like, uh, do I look good in my uniform? Ladies love me in blue. Eh. I should have taken the pills. I'll go get a no sit with me. <laughs> it's so dumb. It's so, so dumb. And Lawrence Fishburne looks fully just like, I am way too good to be here. I need the money, but I'm way too good to be in this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 100%. I think this year, like you said, it was this. There was also... Many of seven right around here and all that stuff. I'm this has gotta be like the beginning of like, oh Chris Pratt, like he's not that good. At least for me it was. I think it took everyone else a couple years to catch on, but I mean for me, it was pretty evident, like this guy can't really do this. I mean, I was still at least in the lingering thing of like, but the Star Lord and Lego movie, right? He's so good in those, right? That's what works. And then the follow-ups happened to those, and Guardians was pretty good, and then Lego Movie 2 is just, like, a thing that exists. And yeah, that really I'm, cemented yeah. me, like, oh, no, he can't, re- like, really repeat that that often. <laughs> that kind of thing. And even when, like, his character is in other hands, like I would argue in both the Avengers movies he's in, I think he's totally, like, mishandled and doesn't know what to fucking do as that character. Like, he needs Gunn to, like, basically tell him how to do Star-Lord right. <laughs> I don't know, man. Do you see what Taika Waititi did with him in the beginning of Thor, Love and Thunder? Oh, that's true. It was so good. I'm, yeah, I'm remember so he happy. was in that for a second? Right, yeah, and so it was D- Dave Bautista and Rock and they were all there. Yeah, yeah. That, that happened. But, but yeah, I would say this is definitely like the beginning of that kind of like, that doubt about Pratt, for sure. And this movie also kind of marks a big turning point in terms of like big Hollywood film for me, where like this is around the time where, like, one, we're, this is, sadly, it is an original script. It's not based on an IP. It's trying to sell itself on two movie stars. But I think, it, like, despite it, like, kind of breaking even, I think helped kind of influence people to be like, oh, you know, people didn't respond that well to that and it kind of broke even fine. So I don't know if we're going to take much other chances on, like, big sci-fi projects like this that aren't based on an IP. It feels like it's not the cause, but it's, like, a brick in that wall, I would argue. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's the cause either, but it's definitely didn't help let's put it that way because it'd be very easy to like with a project coming up that 
you know, it was a sci-fi, you know, sort of small piece with a couple, only a couple actors in it to be like, yeah, well, we tried that uh, with passengers and we had two huge movie stars and we still only broke even. So it's just exactly. the money's not there. It's a shame, dude. It, it really is. You know, it, not, I mean, Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt, they're doing fine. But it's, you know, but it's a shame that the soulless type movies like this come out that either are just not in the right hands or get studio dicked to death. And then it just sort of kills the chances for anything new and original for years. And I mean, I'd argue, I mean, when is the last like big budget original, like sci-fi movie that you can think of that wasn't based on a pre-existing IP? I'm struggling to do so. That's not MCU or like a legacy sequel to something. Right, like, right. Most of the ones that pop up are like definitely smaller things like say an X Machina. They're like not big right. budget. Yeah, like it's straight to, you know, independent theater A24 style. But as far as like a major release, I mean, one that I can point to, Chris Pratt's latest one, like two, a year and a half ago or whatever, that was straight to Amazon. That you can't remember the title of anymore <laughs> because it's a generic ass and, and I saw it and I, I, I can't even really remember what happens in it. So that goes to say a lot. But yeah, he was, now it's kind of relegated to television. And, uh, which is fine. I mean, at least the content is still out there. But like I said, it's a shame that, you know, I, I would say MCU-itis is sort of is still there in Hollywood. Like, if it's not going to be a guaranteed hit, they're not going to make it. Yeah, but at least at the same time, we got people like Lawrence has her production company. That, that's how she got, like, that Causeway movie uh, put together. She produced it. She's going to be producing more stuff. She's at least trying to keep interesting cinema alive while Chris Pratt is picking his nose waiting for another Jurassic movie to be greenlit. Chris Pratt is fucking probably kicking himself in the ass for some of his acceptance speeches that came out. I think he's picking his nose in happy glee. Mindless glee. Hanging out with his, well, he's probably hanging out with his father-in-law. <laughs> oh, that's true, Frank. <laughs> you're such an idiot. God, you're so stupid. What's the matter with you? <laughs> it's still so it? weird that he's in the Schwarzenegger family. It's so bizarre. <laughs> He's technically the Schwarzenegger and Kennedy family. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Pratt is Chris Pratt's a Schwarzenegger slash Kennedy now. What the fuck? Oh, well, I mean, on that note, Adam, uh, let, maybe let's go into final thoughts because we have another movie we'd like to talk about a lot more extensively. So your final thoughts on Passengers. It's really dumb. It's It's a lot of really stupid sort of stereotypical cliche set design wrapped in a really missed opportunity of a story starring two people or one seems bored except for a little bursts and the other just is incapable of handling the material uh, other than Michael Sheen as a really cool sort of quirky robot bartender there's really not much more to offer in this movie even some of the scenes that should have been cool like the gravity scene with the pool like, at first, you're like, oh, wow, and then it just kind of goes on for too long, and then it looks bad. Um, that's the other thing, too. A lot of the CGI in this did not hold up whatsoever. Uh, so, yeah, this is ultimately a big skip, and if I watch this again in two years, like, I think that's about the amount of space, I will have forgotten a lot of it again. Um, so, unless you're just sort of fascinated by Chris Pratt or Jennifer Lawrence, or you're a big fan of them, or you're a completionist of their career... Uh, I, I don't really see any reason to, to watch this or recommending this to anyone. Yeah, you gotta memento yourself and put a tattoo just like, do not believe passengers' lies, so you don't do that again. Yeah, 
You remember Passengers tattooed on my hand. <laughs> Which one was Passengers? Is that the one where Chris Pratt bites aliens that's on Amazon? Yeah, and then Joe Panolano will walk in and give me a Polaroid of myself. You idiot! <laughs> Whoa, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to add to that necessarily, um, except the only silver lining I could possibly have about this is in 20 years or whatever, when Hollywood is still like completely out of ideas, this would be an example of a movie that did decently well and has some kind of, I guess, name value to remake and do it the right way that we're talking about. <laughs> to Absolutely. actually, Because like, I think there is an interesting concept at its core that could be a terrifying sort of sci-fi horror movie with especially two very talented actors playing off of each other. Uh, just this wasn't it, Chief, and not by a wide margin, as it goes from kind of interesting potential idea to creepy, upsetting twist and turn that's trying to make you sympathize with a horrible monster person, to the dumbest, typical blockbuster bullshit with that third act. Like, that shit, I will never forget how much it insulted my fucking intelligence with that fucking last third of this movie. Just no, like, fuck right off with you that bullshit. You loved it. You loved it. You were sitting there with your 7-Eleven fucking tornadoes or whatever the hell they're called, and your big gulp, and you're like, this is awesome! Well, that's true. Like, right now, I'm really pissed off at the third act. But then by, like, the end of this, when the third act of Passengers sacrifices itself, I'll just be like, I can't live without you, third act of yeah. Passengers. <laughs> you go out in space. I'll come with you. <laughs> it gaslighted me into believing that was a great ending for a movie. <laughs> yep, 100%. <laughs> oh, well, let's talk about another movie that, um, you know, didn't do very well either. Not nearly as well as even the Passengers, but... One that we think deserves a bit more attention despite its name, Bad Times at the El Royale. It's a little too quiet in here. It gives me the willies. You're just too good to be true. Sir. Can't take my eyes off you. We have a problem. You'd be like heaven to You watch me? I only watch who they tell me to watch. Who's they? Management. Did you think you could just take what's mine? I wouldn't come a hunt. No, I figured you would. But I'd be ready when he did. He lost, Father? Can I confess something to you? I'm not really a priest. It's a game. Which side are you on? Right, wrong? God or no God? Red or black? done horrible things so everybody shit happens get the whiskey so a uh, bad times of the el royale came out october 12th 2018 from director writer drew goddard who this is his uh second and as of yet last film uh he hasn't directed another film since this uh, and he directed previously cabin in the woods but he also written a couple of things including uh the martian which was sort of the big script, and then that movie's big success and everything got him the sort of uh, blank check, as it were, to make Bad Times of the El Royale, which, um, if you don't know what this is, because you probably are unaware of this movie, given it had a very quiet and sad death at the box office when it came out, um, basically it takes place in the late 60s, I believe, because of the Richard Nixon commencement thing that's happening on the TV, it's specifically like 69, um, and... It takes place at this hotel that is at the border of California and Nevada. That's the whole gimmick. It's like separated right down the middle, uh, where one side's Nevada, one side's California. About a bunch of people that arrive at this hotel. One of them is this priest played by Jeff Bridges. 
Another one is a singer played by Cynthia Revo. There's a salesman played by John Hamm. There's uh, the guy who is running the hotel by himself, pretty much played by Lewis Pullman. And there's also a mysterious woman who comes and played by Dakota Johnson. Um, and they all sort of get rooms at this hotel. And uh, from there, we unravel a bit more about their backstories and why they're here, why some of them have fled over to this corner of uh, the U.S. And uh, things unravel from there. And uh, I wanted to put this as a pick because I saw this in the theater. It was one of the few. Because uh, for its $32 million budget, it only made 31.9 at the box office, so very poorly. Uh, but I kept pitching it to you, Adam, as like you would rec- ask, like, hey, what's a good movie? that like You have your extensive voodoo library. You have Bad Times of the El Royale on there. That's a good one I would recommend you watch. And you're like, yeah, sure, I'll watch it at some point. And then about a year ago when I visited you, and we were doing a lot of like late night movie watching while I was up there in Michigan. I said, you know what? This is a good time. I think you'll really enjoy this movie, Adam. And uh, did you enjoy this movie, Adam? Yeah, man. This movie's fucking great. Uh, this movie is super, super solid. It's uh, it's funny. It's dark. It's got a lot of violence, disturbing shit. Uh, some some of these people this are at like the top of their game. And, you know, a couple, like, one big name that shows up that we'll get into. Really chilling, dark just performance from him. Maybe, like, it's most villainous performance, I think, yet. And he's really good in it. Uh, yeah, I really, really like it. You know, I said then, and I'll stick by it, this is like, it feels like a Coen Brothers movie that was never made by the Coen Brothers. Um, especially like sort of modern day Coens, like post No Country for Old Men type Coens. Feels like that, and then it's got like dashes of the Tarantino and Four Rooms and all that in it. But it's just, it's such a tightly written and directed movie. There's zero lag in this. Even when they go back to like sort of their backstories and stuff like that, it's very exciting. You want to know more about these people. Even who I'd say probably has the blandest backstory, but is one of the most compelling characters in the movie is the Cynthia Erbo character. She's so good in it. And like, you want to know more about her and how she got there. And she has, like I said, probably the least sort of crime ridden or exciting backstory, but you care, like you genuinely care about her. And Pullman is fucking great. And his sort of like, gotta pull myself up moment at the end is like still so like, fuck yeah it's so fucking cool um and it just the sort of the way it's done where it, it, ultimate when he first sort of gives his tally you're like oh god he's a psychopath and then once he gets to his backstory you're like oh no he's just really suffering but it's just it's super super fun i know that's crazy because it's a dark movie but it's fun i have a good time with it you want to see where the stories are going and how they interweave and who's who and sort of the reveals and whatnot and like i'd argue john hams is probably the biggest like right away reveal where you're like oh fuck oh okay and then the other ones sort of like make you guess a little bit the whole time and especially with the um bridges character which one of his like not talked about best performances jeff bridges in this movie is so fucking good as father Flynn, he's so good. And the moments that he sort of shows where he can't remember things, like you generally like are like, oh no, because he he just expresses it so well in the space, especially at, when you know the the main sort of bad guys asking him what his real name is and he cannot remember. And the way he looks at Cynthia Erbo, and you just tell like he's so fucked up, like oh my god, what is my name? And he cannot. It's just it's so heartbreaking. Also, 
when she's in her hotel room singing and clapping to cover up the noise, it's one of my favorite sort of long scenes in a movie in in a long time. It's so fucking good. We go from sort of Dakota Johnson's point of view through the mirror, circle around here, you see Jeff Bridges, go back through the mirror, see Dakota Johnson, and they just kind of keep doing it. It's so fucking good. Yeah, no, this movie's great, dude. I, I you know, and the thing is, I've recommended it since we've watched it to a lot of people, my brother especially, because I know he'd love it. And he's, he's kind of where I was, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll check it out, check it out. Um, I'm actually going over to his house tomorrow night, and I think I'm going to make him watch it. It's that good. Yeah, um, I mean, you rattled off a bunch of things I would agree with in terms of, like, what works about this movie. I think I'll say this much, that the Cynthia Revo element, like, I wouldn't necessarily say her backstory is bland. Because I think, like, that backstory has a lot of, like, rich sort of, like, context to the time. It also makes me... I guess, like, in, like, I guess in comparison. I guess. It's not as exciting. Let's put it that way. Not technically, yeah, because she's, like, a singer who mostly does, like, backup stuff uh, for a lot of, like, classic Motown songs. You hear her sing a bunch of great, like, the You Can't Hurry Love and stuff like that, uh, which is a great sort of, like, Motown-era soundtrack that she sings a lot of. What also works for, like, that backstory, and I think what works kind of, like, for all these characters is, like, my sort of theory slash a bit of a hot take, given the Tarantino element of it, um... I think this is a better, more interesting, nuanced meditation on the end of the 60s than uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, quite frankly. Oh, without a doubt. I know, yeah. That's not a hot take for the two of us. That's a hot take for some people out there. <laughs> but... Well, though some people are wrong. <laughs> uh, but I think, like, because so much of it is about, like, all these characters who have these various different backstories that we're mentioning. Like, you have, like, John Hamm, who's this, like, CIA guy who's trying to basically, like, find out, like, secret dirt that is, like, hidden within this hotel. Uh, you've got Jeff Bridges, who's, like, an old man who's, like, on the outs. It's, like, the entire world is changing around him, especially since he's been in prison for so long coming out of that. Uh, Arivo, who is a black woman trying to survive, like, especially in a industry that constantly wants to devalue her and put her like on a certain contract that would just like devalue any of like her actual talents and then you've got the dakota johnson of it all which kind of segues into like we kind of danced around him but chris hemsworth and that whole like cult uh charlie manson style thing at the same time like all of them converge at this literal location that's like between two fixed points and it's so much about like that transition between, like, the 60s to the 70s, and how all these characters are, like, completely lost, completely have nowhere to go, and some of them are trying to, like, take the money and run, some of them are trying to, like, save what they can, what they know, and then, like, eventually, when everything just goes to shit, it's basically just like, well, man, fuck all this, like, cultural bullshit. Let's get the hell out of here, and let's try and, like, survive as best we can. Which I think, you know, feels pretty appropriate for, like, the end of the 60s, where everything just went to chaos. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, one of the biggest sort of things that I think really represent that is the film. It's obviously alluded to that it's Kennedy with prostitutes in the hotel room. Some people want to exploit it. Other people want to keep it hidden just to not exploit sort of the memory of the man. And it probably, you know, just the 60s itself. And uh, it's it's a really fucking easy thing to just kind of like, oh, it's Kennedy. But there's a lot of meaning behind that. Right, especially when you get to Arivo's amazing speech, which apparently she, like, beefed up so from Goddard, so where she God. just talks about, where it's just like, oh, don't you want to know who it is? Just like, let me guess, it's a man who talks a lot, doesn't really stand for anything. Yeah, I don't give a shit. I don't care. I don't want to know what that is, because, like, it's not going to really change anything. 
if I found out about, like, what this guy actually did. Because, like, no shit a guy in power would probably, like, go off to the back doors and, like, fuck some, like, prostitute somewhere, right? And when the when she's like, and he, just like you, you know, to Hemsworth, and he's about to say something, she's like, I don't care. I've heard it. And you could tell, like, he's literally pissing his pants. Like, she's got me figured out. Like, it's so good. Well, that's a great... Actually, that whole scene with them at the roulette table is genuinely, like, tense. It's it's less a scene, more like the third act of the movie. It's, like, basically all in that fucking room. Yeah, pretty much. And it's fucking tense, dude. Like, it really doesn't let up. And I will say, the ultimate ending to Dakota Johnson, I completely forgot. Yeah. Like, for some reason in my head, I thought she was one of the ones that got away. And you're like, oh, no, she's the second one of the main cats to bite it. Like, and it's brutal the way it happens. Like, it, but... Man, Hemsworth. Hemsworth fucking listening to Deep Purple, dancing with like a plate of pork chops. It's so good. It's so good. Which the craziest thing is too, man. So I did a little bit of research, you know, it's shocking. But uh, he had to lose between 25 to 30 pounds of muscle after he did Infinity War in order to play this part. Where did he lose it? Because he still looks fucking jacked. I will say he looks lean as opposed to like in the Avengers movies where he looks like a massive... I would say he at least yeah, looks leaner, like more like quite frankly a human buff person, as opposed to like a god. He looks more like how he did in the first Thor compared to how he did in like Love and Thunder. You know, speaking of the director, he looks a bit more like he did in like Captain in the Woods. Yes, I can agree with that. I think he works perfectly as like a cult leader who like you would be fascinated by, but at the same time is clearly bad news if you're not being manipulated by him. Mm-hmm. And I think they they sell like that sort of like cult mentality, but particularly Kaylee Spaining who I think is, like, great as uh, Dakota Johnson's sister, uh, who shows up and, like, is clear, like, oh, you're a full-on, like, Manson girl. It's like you're totally brainwashed under his spell. Oh, completely. Yeah, there's no coming back. Yeah, there's no coming back for her. Which, you know, I always forget, like, you know, devs. Like, we saw her devs. Yes. The awful craft reboot. Um, She's been in a lot that I always forget about. Uh, She's really good. I really, really like Kaylee Spaney. Yeah, she's a very talented young actress coming up. But I will say... This movie, along with another movie we talked about previously from 2018 that came out like a month after this, uh, Widows, were the movies where I'm just like, Cynthia Revo's a fucking star. Like, I knew she was on Broadway, but like in this movie in particular, like all the scenes with her and Bridges, who's like one of our favorite actors, like is so great, she goes toe-to-toe with him beautifully. Like in the great scene where like they're in the diner and they eat the pie and he talks about his whole thing about his past and she brings up her past. Like it's such a great tit-for-tat moment that ends perfectly with her like bashing him over the head with that fucking wine bottle. And then later on when they're in the car, another great like tense scene of just like, what would you do in my situation? I would probably shoot the old priest who's talking silly. Yeah, exactly what I would do. (laughs) I love that too. When they're in the car, he's like, by the way, I'm sorry for trying to drug you. And she stared at him. He's like, "So I guess what I'm saying is, no hard feelings hit me that head with the bottle." <laughs> <laughs> so he's waiting for her to apologize. Basically, <laughs> it's so good. But yeah, they're great together. I love the this sort of their relationship in this movie, where you know the end, where it's like he's still there for her, man. Like that's his new partner, basically. And they survive together, and they're just two people who on the outs with sort of the norm at at that time that it was. And they're sort of trying to figure out how to live in the world as it is after what happened. And it's pretty fucking great. And by the way, never see his face, but you know the voice, Nick Offerman, baby. You do see his face at the beginning. 
You see him, like, the opening of the movie. But he's, like, pretty much cast in shadow. I mean, like, initially when he walks into the room, but then, he like, he's pretty well lit for when he's, like, burying the money in the room. Yeah. Says you. Also, I had the brightness turned all the way down. <laughs> also, I watched it with sunglasses on. I didn't see him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, had the, I had those glasses on after you get LASIK. This movie's so bright, I gotta wear shades. Yeah. Um, what also works for me with, like, this this whole thing is, like, you mentioned kind of, like, the, oh, this is Coen Brothers-inspired. I agree with you that I think it's more Coen Brothers-y, but at the same time, like, a lot of people made the comparisons to Quentin Tarantino when this came out. And I think the difference for me is, whereas with, like, a Quentin Tarantino, like, he'll take his time in terms of, like, having, like, these big elaborate sort of sequences that are just, like, you know, either ripping off on movies he's seen before or just having the characters kind of, like, have a big dialogue. Sometimes I think that works really well. I think particularly, you know, in some of his, like, earlier movies necessarily that are also very bottle movie-esque. But I think in, um, with, with this, it feels so much more like any of the dialogue that happens isn't just there to be cool. It's also there to tell you something about the characters that's a lot more interesting and intriguing. Like, when John Hamm first shows up, and he does this whole thing about just like, oh yeah, I'm a salesman, and here's my card, and here's all oh, this and stuff like that. There's all these like interesting tells where it's like, okay, this is a front of some sort, but also certain things creep out about him that are obvious, like how he treats Cynthia Revo that whole time, where he's trying to be friendly, but at the same time is very clearly still has prejudice behind him and stuff like that. Like, there's so much detail that you find out about him to when you find out like, oh, he's a fucking CIA agent. Like, of course, that makes so much sense, because he's, like, he's trying to completely obviously, like, I am no trouble to you whatsoever now. If you'll excuse me, I gotta go to the honeymoon suite and dig out all these fucking wires that are in here. No, I agree with you. I think it's, I mean, I have heard the, obviously, the Tarantino comparison before. I kind of made one earlier. I meant more or less where, like, you could tell maybe he was influenced by Tarantino, right. but I definitely agree. Uh, there's no, at no point in this movie, even with the Hemsworth, where Hemsworth could potentially be the biggest character in it to where like he's just so cool and, and he, you don't get that no he's terrifying uh but and also the dialogue there's, it's not laden with f-bombs or racial slurs and all that as tarantino is known to do now uh no i i can see the influences for sure uh and same with like i said with the cones and stuff but it, it's definitely its own animal though like that's the thing like i, I have no problem with movies and directors and writers sort of showing their influences. But when it becomes almost like a carbon copy, like, like, oh, the Coen brothers could have just done this or Tarantino could have just done this. I don't think that's the case. I think Goddard came into it with sort of a respect and appreciation for his filmmaker and his storytelling idols and sort of used those influences and created something really cool and unique. It's very rare nowadays that you get an ensemble cast movie, at least for me, and I genuinely am interested in every single person in the cast and who they are where they've come from why are they there and all that and this is definitely one of those that does it for me where like what the fuck whoa this is crazy who what why 123 why what where what and then you find out it's just it's so fucking good like i said even with like tarantino stuff like the last one once upon a time in hollywood i didn't give a fuck about half of the shit that happens in that movie or hateful eight i don't care about all of these guys michael madison's in a bed the whole movie why do i care about where he comes from like it's just but this one like i genuinely want to know where everybody who everybody is and why and i think the the rose character boots or whatever they call her by the end she's basically catatonic when he shows back up but 
when you just kind of get the glimpses of the things he put her through, and you're like, oh, it's terrible. It's just kind of, it's disturbing in a way, you know, where he makes her fight the other girl for a chance to fuck him. Like, it's sick, but you get why she'd be so fucked up in the head. But without that, the character wouldn't mean as much or wouldn't have that much impact. Like, you need those little moments. And this one, I think, gives you enough for every character to flesh it out just to the point where it's not overdoing it and you have enough story to where you're genuinely curious where they're going to go from here, if they're going to survive and what they will do. And I think the ultimate payoff of what happens with the, you know, or the two survivors is really fucking good. Right. Yeah. It's not a movie that's necessarily obsessed with being as cool as I would argue a lot of Tarantino is. It's definitely much more of a movie that like knows exactly what it is, which is like the sixties pastiche, which based on the box office results of this movie, uh, not necessarily a cool thing. All the kids are into, but I think like, it, it knows just, like, okay, I we want to make this, like, interesting story about, like, all these, once again, characters who kind of represent the 60s kind of, like, coming together at a certain point and then diverging off. And I think it feels like this interesting thing where, like, even the speeches that, like, the speech I mentioned that Cynthia Revo gives, it's not, like, a super, like, overwritten kind of Tarantino-y thing. It's much more of, like, an actual, just, like, I'm fucking tired of your bullshit speech, which I think works so much better, where it feels just like, no, this is actually coming from the character rather than just, this is a cool bit, right? Yeah, and it's two minutes long compared to, like, eight. Right. Like, it's, it's, it's like just her. Pages, right? Yeah, it's her just fucking venting. Basically tell them, fuck you, do what you're going to do. And that's pretty much it. Right. And even, like, the, the small character back and forth and all that stuff, it just it unravels more about these people where I agree, like, it doesn't reveal everything to you, and I think it's smarter for that. It's the greatest example of just kind of, like, giving you enough, but leaving you wanting, like, just enough more about these characters to where I don't want, like, another bad time at the El Royale necessarily, but, like, I, I like seeing, like, these few big brief glimpses we get of these people. I find them fascinating for what we do get of them. And I think we should probably go into just, like, the actual location, because I mentioned earlier, like, this, the set design of the El Royale is amazing. It's all built from scratch. It's based on, I know there's a, a real hotel that's kind of, like, in a similar spot, like, the Cal Neva which is, like, the one that's, like, in between Nevada and California. That was a real hotel that existed. But this feels just, like, it feels so authentic to that period, which is all the detail, like, the differences between California and Nevada sides, and even, like, the rooms that we get glimpses of, or even that back area where, like, we see the uh, two-way mirrors and stuff like that. It is such an immaculately designed place that you want to see, like, all these scenes unravel in, once again, this contained location. Yeah, right, exactly. And I love that it's just the right amount of sort of kitschy and and tacky you know with the california on one side and on the other side like how many movies have you seen or how many times have people done it where like now i'm in california now i'm in nevada now i'm in california now i'm in nevada they jump across the line jump across the line and it, just the fact that you can only drink and gamble on the one side and coffee's 25 cents on the other side like there's so many fucking really fun ways they use it but at the end I mean, just ultimately what happens to the Pullman character, he dies right in the middle. You can also take away sort of the purgatory allegory from this. Like these people are stuck in the middle between choose which one's heaven, choose which one's hell. But that's only, you could take that away from this, where like these people who are just lost end up in this place and they're, they're just, again, lost and they're stuck. It's such a smart fucking movie that is really a shame that it bombed. I mean, granted, I don't want a sequel either. But I feel like this one should be at least talked about a lot, lot more than it is. 
to the point where, you know, I've, when you even tell people like, oh, you should watch Bad Times at El Royale, if they're not like total film dorks like me and you, they have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, if anything else, I wish it didn't sort of put Drew Goddard's career into sort of a tailspin. Yeah, crazy. But none of the stuff that he's written, at least, has been produced. There's been a lot of, like, turnaround development for his stuff. Remember, he was going to be the guy who he was working on the Daredevil show for a bit and then left to do the Sinister Six movie for Sony. And then that fell apart. (laughs) Yep. That's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not. I'm glad we didn't get the Sinister Six movie, but it's unfortunate you left Daredevil for it. But it's unfortunate yeah. just that this guy, like, who's I think incredibly talented based on just like the scripts that he has done. Like, I, I think Cabin in the Woods is great. The Martian's a really good screenplay. He wrote Cloverfield as well. Previous topic of the show. Like that dude, I think is so immensely talented, and I wish like we got more from him. And especially, I would want to see him direct again because between this and Cabin in the Woods, I think he's a very talented director. At the same time, he's a great writer. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I just want, I just period want more from the guy. I just, it's kind of unfortunate. Like, is is it because of this movie that he's not really doing anything? Or is it just sort of bad decisions? I mean, I'll put it this way. I think this is probably the reason why he hasn't directed another movie. I think a lot of the writing stuff has just been like typical Hollywood, like weird turnaround stuff. Probably not helped by this movie not doing that well either. It's, it's a shame, because, I mean, he's still, like, he does, like, TV stuff, so, like, he had, before this, even, he worked on, speaking of, you mentioned Lost characters, he worked on Lost and like, a lot of J.J. Abrams shows, so he's not, like, begging for money, necessarily, but at the same time, it's a shame that, like, he doesn't, like, this feels like, at the very least, like, he took his opportunity to be, like, I'm hot right now, uh, a lot of people want to see my script, like, literally, there was a whole thing where, behind the scenes, when he was pitching the script to various studios, he would literally have a courier come over to a studio executive's like office and give them a tablet where the script was on it. And then the guy would have to leave with the tablet. (laughs) So it was like that secretive because everyone was like so hot on the Martian. So I think it's like, he definitely took advantage of like, this is my time to do whatever the fuck I wanted. And you know what? God bless him. Cause I think this movie is great and would not be done in the modern studio system. Kind of speaking to what we said about earlier with passengers, no studio would spend $30 million on a movie like this now at all. No, not less uh, one of those names we've mentioned that its influences are. Like if the Coen brothers or Tarantino came out nowadays with a movie like this, they'd get that budget. But for like a kind of unknown, take a shot at director, no, nah, not going to happen. No way. No, sadly. But I mean, Adam, is there anything else you want to like shout out before we uh, head on out of the El Royale? Uh, not much. Like I said, it, it's just, it's a wonderful fucking Bridges' performance, man. And, you know, the thing is, like, of course, like, True Grit, he was great. Tron Legacy, well, eh. This is a much better movie where he played a guy named Flynn, I would argue, yes. than yeah, either no, Tron movie. No, I agree. I can agree with that. Uh, but, yeah, like like I said, True Grit, this, The Old Man Show, uh, that's on, things like that. But, man, he's, he's so good in this. And for such a sort of beloved actor... You know, who I'd argue post-Lebowski fell into, like, a Pacino post-son-of-a-woman sort of thing, where he's kind of played the same character and everything. I would argue that's way more like True Grit, because there was a point where he just couldn't stop talking like Rooster Cogburn in every movie he was in. Well, but before that, he was all the dude in pretty much everything. Like, even Tron Legacy. Like, he far out, man! You know, (laughs) like, it's, it's, okay. But this, like, it's a really fucking good performance, and... You know, I I think he's on the mend health-wise, which thankfully, because uh, yes. I love that dude. Uh, but this is one of those that I hope, you know, sort of gets remembered or discovered 
uh, if not for anything for his performance. Uh, because as good as Cynthia Orville is in this, he is still my favorite in this. I think it's fucking great. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, it's just a great example, like, this entire ensemble where, like, the Reva was great. This was the first time I saw Dakota Johnson in something where I was like, oh, no, you're actually very good. I want to see more of you in other things after, because this was, like, right after, like, the three fucking Fifty Shades movies. I will absolutely agree with that, too, because I had no interest in her until, like, well, I saw other things before this, but, yeah, I can see why you would think that, because she is really fucking good at this. And if you're also, uh, give a lot of credit, her best performance in completely destroying Ellen DeGeneres' career, like starting the downfall, with the interview's like, that's not how it happened, Ellen. Yeah, good. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, everyone's really good in this movie. It's a wonderful ensemble in a way that, like, we get ensemble movies obviously still to this day to some degree, but this feels so much more like every person, there doesn't feel like a small part. Like even down to like a Lewis Pullman, who this was like around the time where he was also in the Strangers sequel, and now like he's a really solid little character actor in his own right. He was just Bob in Top Gun Maverick. We all loved Bob. Dude, and it's so weird. Like if you close your eyes in certain times when he's talking, like it's just Bill Pullman talking. When I watched this with you, like I told you, like this guy is the son of a famous person actor, and he's like, I don't know who could it be, and I said Bill Pullman's kid, and you were like. Oh, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's not like it all clicked together for you. Oh, absolutely. He's got the same mouth and the same eyes. Yes. Like, he's, he, yeah, and he's really fucking good at this. And, like, you know, just not to hijack your thing, but when he's tied up, and Dakota Johnson's sort of, like, interrogating him, like, he's giving a genuine, like, distraught performance. Like, it's pretty fucking great. Oh, yeah, particularly when he's just like, I don't know your names, and Kaylee Spinney tells them their names. Oh, right away, so. I know. Yeah, how did, well, how, how did I look? Well, to be fair, I don't know what you looked like before, but I have a feeling things are going to change for you. <laughs> yes. And even earlier on, the bit where like he's introducing the hotel and he does the whole spiel, just like, the El Royale was built in like, this particular area. Because John Hamm makes him do it again. Too. Yeah, do the thing again, do it. <laughs> do your little presentation. Oh, and Ham. Ham is like, this is one of the best uses of Ham in the movie, which is saying... Not a lot, because he isn't often used well in movies, but this is a great example of how to use him. I agree. I agree. I, I, you know, the thing is, I didn't get to watch uh, Confess Fletch yet, which I'm imagining is a great use of him, too. But, uh, yeah, he's so fucking good at this, man. Um, like, I liked him in, like, you know, his little bits and Bridesmaids. I think he's really funny. Uh, but other than that, no, he doesn't really get great movie work. But in this, he's really solid. I'd say, well... He had two great sort of roles this last year alone. I, well, apparently, Confess Fletch, which, again, I can hear you every time I say it. It's so good. Uh, but uh, so good. Top Gun Maverick, he's really solid in, too. With with Lewis uh, Pullman as well. Just with Lewis Pullman, yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're a cannon. <laughs> uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah, he's really fucking good, too. Yeah, it's just, and I love the little recurring bit. I think it, they say it like three or four times, you got glass in your face. <laughs> like, like it's it's pretty funny like this movie's there's so much and this is only the second time i've seen it um i'm i've only watched it with you and then i watched it this morning and uh like i'm ready to watch it with somebody else that can discover it too like that's this type of movie you want to watch it with people who haven't seen it to sign of get them going whoa what the fuck and holy shit like that's this type of movie if it had been made like a decade earlier this would be a pass around the dvd kind of movie Without a doubt. For sure. Yeah. Yep, without a doubt. Late night cable, 
pass around on DVD sort of movie. Right, which is a shame now in a modern streaming age, it's harder to get people to watch things, especially they're like, oh, it's five years old. I don't, like, I could watch some new television show Netflix put out. Like, they put out like five of them. I gotta catch or, up, Adam. Or I'll put it in my list. How long's your list? 3,000 things. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And by the time you do want to watch it, it'll be off Netflix. It'll be on Paramount Plus then, and then it'll go to Peacock, then it'll go to some other place. It'll just, like, travel around the various different streaming services. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. It's an incredible movie. I think it's a very underrated movie. So many great things. Like you mentioned it ages ago when we started this conversation, but that scene where Arrivo was doing the can't hurry love while Jeff Bridges is trying to get underneath the floorboards and Dakota Johnson's watching is just one of my favorite scenes of like the last decade or so in movies. It's like such a perfect setup for like all the characters utilizing, like their sort of like things we know about them very well. Like, everyone feels, like, intact, but also it's, like, shot so well. It's so, like, well-performed by everybody. It just, you get so much of, like, each character and the story, like, really ratcheting up the tension in a really well-utilized scene that, like, is so good. I just, I love this movie, for sure. I think it definitely deserves a lot more attention. If you avoided it, or even if you're maybe someone who watched it and was just like, oh, it's not as good as Cabin in the Woods, like I, a few people I know have said, uh, give it another chance. Oh, God, I mean, it's it's a, complete, it's a completely different okay you know bfg is uh, not as good as schindler's list good point that's true <laughs> well, it's that not means, that hack <laughs> yeah right exactly that fucking hack where you go name me okay. five movies in between those two that he did that were good <laughs> you know what maybe 15 good movies he's done <laughs> oh. all right no problem <laughs> well, let me pull up my Spielberg list on Letterboxd and tell you all about Excuse it. Excuse me. Deranged from Best Wars and by year. And color-coded by poster. <laughs> oh, well, Adam, it's time we get into our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double, 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 redo. That works. So the Double Redo is a segment that Adam and I do every week in which we uh, bring up a good and a bad movie related to the topic in question. Uh, so Adam and I each have a good and a bad example of a bottle movie, uh, one to recommend to everybody and one to dissuade you from necessarily. Uh, so I'll go ahead and start here. And uh, both of mine, interestingly, are both just from last year, 2022. Um, very recent movies, uh, but uh, my good pick is one called Something in the Dirt, which is from uh, writer-director stars uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who also had done uh, some stuff like The Endless and Resolution, and uh, they were also involved in like some of the Marvel shows, I believe, as of recent. But um, these guys are, like I think, very interesting, small-scale indie genre directors. And uh, this one, uh, which stars the two of them, uh, basically follows uh, their two characters as one of them moves into an apartment complex in L.A. Um, and uh, beats his neighbor. And uh, as it turns out, uh, there's apparently some sort of like weird phenomenon that's going up but here in like the Hollywood Hills where they're living. And uh, it mostly takes place inside their apartment complex, either in one of the apartments or the other one's apartment. They, they see basically like this glass ashtray like lift up into the air and then fall. Like, it happens, like, a bunch of times over the course of, like, a week or so. And they decide, you know what? Let's film it, and let's do, like, a little documentary. So there's partially documentary elements, and there's also, like, weird, interesting kind of, like, spiraling 
uh, elements that feels like one of them is especially going down a weird conspiracy rabbit hole that I find fascinating. You see, like, the two of them, you reveal a lot more about their characters as they kind of, like, are together. And you get, like, there's a lot of, like, interesting tension. There's a lot of funny moments. There's a lot of just, like, really good indie, especially, like, sort of, like, sci-fi horror elements that I think just make this a really interesting, unique movie that... Uh, I saw when it was briefly in theaters, um, and I think it's like a tremendous little underrated gem from last year that I'd recommend to anybody out there. Um, and then my bad one was one that premiered on Netflix and was one of many, as we mentioned, like movies that come out on Netflix and then disappear into the ether. Um, it is called Windfall. So it stars uh, Jesse Plemons and Lily Collins, who play like a couple. Uh, he's like a tech mogul of some sort. They imply he's kind of like, you know, a, a sort of Elon Musk type guy. Um, and they're, like, going off to their vacation home in uh, the middle of nowhere uh, when they end up getting ambushed by this guy who breaks into their home, played by Jason Siegel. And it's basically this like, little attempt at, like, a thriller where um, the three of them are kind of, like, stuck in this room together um, as Jason Siegel is like, okay, you need to wire me, like, some money. And it's like, well, it's a Sunday. I can't wire you any money right now. We have to wait until, like, Monday so I can bring it over. It's like, fine, I'm holding you hostage for 24 hours then until you can like get me the fucking money that I need. And there's an interesting idea to this concept. And like Charlie McDowell is the director who interestingly, uh, son of Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen. Um, and he had done previously a movie called the one I love, which is a much better small movie that stars Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss. Uh, that I thought was, like, a really solid debut movie, and I was like, oh, I can't wait to see more from him. And then Windfall and his other movie, The Discovery, have kind of shown, like, oh, he likes doing these intimate bottle movies because it feels like, quite frankly, he can just use, like, his parents' vacation houses and get famous people to be in them. Uh, I don't think anyone in the cast is that bad. I like Lily Collins and Jason Segel, like, in this kind of, like, interesting different roles for them. And then Jesse Plemons, I think, is the highlight. I think he's a great actor in general, but I think he's fun as, like, this asshole rich dude who you kind of want to see have a downfall to a certain degree. It, you know, it's it's about 92 minutes long, but it runs out of steam way before that even that small running time is near completion. And it just kind of feels like it sputters out and it doesn't do a lot of interesting stuff with the location. Once again, it just feels like, is this Mary Steenburgen's fucking vacation house that I'm looking at here? Cool. I don't care about this fucking situation. I kind of want to leave it. So uh, those are my two picks. Okay. Uh, I haven't seen either, but I really did like Endless quite a bit. Uh, so something in the dirt I will watch, uh, keep an eye out for. It's not really streaming anywhere right now. Uh, but I'm half tempted to just rent it because it sounds great. I like those guys. I like that type of movie. Absolutely on the watch list for sure. And then Windfall, uh, I've never even heard of. I like Jesse Plemons quite a bit. I do like Lily Collins a lot. Uh, Jesse Plemons to me, uh, Gary and Game Night, best performance ever. Um, <laughs> so fucking good. But um, yeah, it's just, uh, okay. You know, with those type of movies that I haven't heard of, uh, usually if they pop up on your bad review, I don't even bother because uh, usually you're right. I, I will say there's maybe one or two times <gasps> that I watched the movie on your recommendation that I've been like, uh, I mean, it was okay, but most of the time you're right. So I'll stay away from that one. I can't believe he admitted it, everybody. It was a total lie. <laughs> Release this on April 1st. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> for my. Uh, good. I have a movie that you and I uh, watched together. It was a really little movie. Came out in 2019. Got a really good cast: Bill Skarsgård, Michael Monroe, Jeffrey Donovan, Kira Sedgwick as our four main leads. 
and it's uh, like a dark comedy horror movie. It's called Villains. And, uh, you know, basically it's Bill Skarsgård and Mike and Rowe are a young couple who are on the run because they robbed a gas station and their car broke down. So they end up breaking into this house and they plan on robbing it when the homeowners come home. And it's Jeffrey Donovan and Kira Sedgwick. And, of course, you know, turns out they have a kid chained up in the basement and it kind of goes from there and it just gets crazier and darker. But, uh, you know, I will say Bill Skarsgård, so funny in it. Michael Monroe, so funny. Kira Cedric, so unhinged, but man, is Jeffrey Donovan fucking fantastic. Uh, he's got that just weird Southern charm, that small John Waters type mustache. Uh, you know, he's constantly wearing an ascot, has a cigarette and a little cigarette holder. Like he's just so fucking good and weird but it's like a really fun and funny performance uh which is why i'm like oh yeah freddy krueger should be jeffrey donovan like these type of performances where he can just get really weird and real sort of like charming but at the same time he's so evil and (laughs) scary and it's just it's a really solid fun little movie and then for my bad um i have a movie that uh you know i was kind of conflicted what i was going to choose for my bad uh up until literally recording because uh, there's a lot of bad ones. But our actual good choice sort of made me pick this one. It came out in 2018. Uh, it's another movie that has a huge ensemble cast. Jodie Foster, Sophia Batella, Dave Batista, Sterling K. Brown, Jeff Goldblum, by Tyree Henry, Jenny Slate, Zachary Quinto, Charlie Day, Kenneth Choi. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And it's about a hotel written by and directed by someone named Drew. It is Hotel Artemis, which is a like set in the near future crime thriller slash comedy action movie and uh i honestly can say other than sterling k brown who is really good he's usually really good and he's really good in this and jodie foster is really good in it too but it's so horribly miscast and tonally all over the place it's a really like perplexing movie in the way that you have so many questions of why this is the way this is, where it could have been really cool. Basically, Jodie Foster plays this nurse who runs a hotel where criminals can come and get fixed up and, and healed up and rest for free, or they can hide out there or whatever. Think like the Continental John Wick, but in the future. But it just fails on so many levels, which is a really a shame, especially with that cast. And this was kind of like Jodie Foster's big return uh, after Elysium. And uh, it just, it falls flat, unfortunately, which is really a bummer. But uh, yeah, not very good. Uh, yeah, I have not seen Hotel Artemis. That was definitely a movie when I saw the trailer. It was like, this feels like it could be either a great movie that's not going to do very well or a movie that will be forgotten to time. I feel like it's more like the latter based on a lot of what you've said. And also just it does did not make any kind of imprint whatsoever. It doesn't have like a huge fan base yet. I don't know, maybe in 10 years, just like the underrated masterpiece of Hotel Artemis. It gets reclaimed when hey, every movie does after. Yeah, Batista won an Oscar. Let's go back to his original movies. Right, that's true. Uh, shout out, though, uh, Brian Tyree Henry, recently nominated for an Oscar for that Causeway movie I mentioned yeah. earlier. He's great yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah well, congratulations deserved. to that guy. That guy's awesome. Yes, for sure. Uh, but then, as you mentioned, we did watch Villains together. And I had heard about Villains, but I didn't really give it a watch until we watch it together. And that was a tremendous little movie. Yeah, I agree. I think it does such a great job with, like, its small location and all the actors are very good. But especially Jeffrey Donovan was, like... Because that dude, I just know, was, like... He's the guy on that Burn Notice show that apparently either everyone watches or no one watches because it lasted 10 years on USA. Yeah, I, was, I was doing it as 
Jeffrey from Blair Witch 2. That is true. He is in Blair Witch 2, yes. Uh, he's sort of the lead of that movie, question mark. Um, but, yeah, I, I uh, definitely really like the, him in that particularly. He, he's doing like a full-on like, foghorn leghorn, like almost southern gentleman voice, and he's very fun in that role. And again, that's a, like a generally, a really good example of like how all of those actors kind of like play a bit more against type. Cause like Skarsgård, we know obviously is like a Pennywise and Mike Monroe from like it follows, but they're able to have a lot more fun as those characters. I agree. I think they're like very like sort of darkly funny in that movie. And I love all the little twists and turns of very, like I agree an underrated gem for, uh, that people should seek out for sure. You know what? One of my favorite things about that movie is that I forgot to mention uh, when I was talking about it that I didn't realize until I was reading about it. Bill Skarsgård's character on his wrist has a tattoo of the car from Death Proof. That's true. <laughs> totally yes. makes sense to me. But it's dummy. <laughs> Uh, but let's repeat our titles for everybody out there, uh, just in case, you know, you want to jot them down, put them on your watch list and such. Uh, my good pick was Something in the Dirt, and my bad pick was Windfall. And my good pick was Villains, and my bad pick was Hotel Artemis. Yes, and we'll be uh, closing out the show, though stay tuned for, uh, you know, some, some housekeeping and uh, our picks for next week uh, as we uh, go through our thanks and such for the show. Uh, we want to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to uh, Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water at various socials for all his great stuff and thanks of course to our loyal patreon supporters at patreon.com slash dedbpod where for just one dollar a month you all get to do stuff like a listen to bonus podcast we put up you know every month and also uh some voting polls for individual movies we'll cover on future episodes also topics and such and uh you know we talked about a bad lawrence fishburne movie on this uh, particular episode adam uh well in a couple you know in uh, about a month or so uh give or take uh we'll be talking about uh, an entire lawrence fishburne episode and uh, you all get to pick my bad pick for that particular episode uh it'll be a poll it'll be up uh, the week that this episode comes out on the wednesday as we usually do for our polls and you'll get to vote between my two bad picks which are uh osmosis jones the uh, sort of infamous live-action animation hybrid uh, that stars him as, like, an evil virus character uh, that I have not seen since I was a child, and Biker Boys, which I know very little about except Adam has recommended several times as, like, a very terrible, bad movie that kind of fits into the torque realm of things, right? Yes, it does. It's okay. so bad. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so Osmosis Jones versus Spiker Boys, you all get to vote in that. For just the $1, you have a chance to sway which one of those bad movies we will cover on our future Lawrence Fishburne episode. You got any one you're pulling for, Adam? I am 100% pulling for Biker Boys. <laughs> I think 100%. You you've got to see Biker Boys. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, uh, but for more of the show, you can find us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DEDBpod. And you can also submit feedback to us, like your own double redo choices and stuff, over to our email, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, follow me on Twitter and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. I also do some writing at uh, marianithomas.wordpress.com, 
at film-cred.com. And shout out um, a friend of the show, Rafe Telsch, uh, has his show, Have Not Seen This, that recently relaunched. Adam was on the previous episode. And uh, I helped Rafe in a pinch when he didn't have a guest and a movie to cover. And uh, I recommended him Short Term 12, which we talked about on the most recent episode of the show. Go into the show notes. You'll be able to pick up uh, the link for that. I'll put it there for sure. Um, And we had a very nice discussion about um, a very emotionally complex movie. That dude... After, like, you did the proposition, and the previous one was seven, along with Short Term 12, it's been a rough three episodes coming back for him. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, Short Term 12 is his favorite movie anybody's ever recommended for the show. (laughs) He did say that. Not to brag, but he did say that. That's true. I'm glad you pointed out, and I didn't. Fuck him, sellout. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You can find me on Instagram, Letterboxd, and... (gasps) Twitter now. Uh, Instagram, I'm Atom or Adam. That's A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A M. On Letterboxd, I'm Schwanson at S C H W A N D T S O N. And on Twitter, I'm Schwanson says. So the exact same spelling I just gave you, underscore S E Z. The most surprising thing I could have ever heard was that you were I know, on and it's not going to last. By the time any, this episode comes out, it might be gone. Right. Who knows? Yes. But uh, you're there for the time being. Uh, if you and the ether can hear us recording, you can follow him now. But um, Adam, I believe you also have an announcement to make. I do. I'm going to be taking a uh, temporary hiatus from hosting duties uh, from the show. I will still try to make uh, my best effort to pop on for the Patreon stuff. And I, I will definitely be coming back. Uh, I expect it to maybe be two weeks to a month. Uh, hopefully no longer than that, but if it does, it does. Uh, just a lot of things in my personal life came up, and uh, you know, for mental health uh, reasons, I need to sort of step away from any other commitments other than sort of my family and financial stuff. But um, I will be back for sure. Thomas is more capable. He's already got a great sort of slate of guest hosts coming up, so stay tuned. I'll miss it, but uh, like I said, I ain't going to be too far away. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about this privately, and I'll definitely say, um, what matters most to me, Adam, because obviously through this show we've had, like, a genuine friendship really build, um, is what, (laughs) I would argue, (laughs) don't don't answer that, Um, but I I would say, like, what matters to me more than anything beyond, like, the show or anything like that is, you know, if you had to take a mental health break, like, that totally makes sense, and that, like, what matters most is, like, your personal, like, mental health and any of these other things, if you need to take that break, I'm totally cool with it the show obviously we like you mentioned i have a bunch of guest hosts lined up who will be uh taking your stead but i think it's also important to note that at the very least whatever sort of like opposite of the picks i have you will still be bringing to the show if i have the good picks you'll bring the bad picks vice versa that's the big thing that so you'll still have an influence over the show yeah it'll still be my choices for sure yes yes uh but you know oh i'm uh, going to i'm going to absolutely Fuck, so many of the co-hosts. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> Bobby, um, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, hopefully you get that rest, and uh, I can't wait, you know, for you to, whenever you're ready, to come back to the show. Thanks, I appreciate it. Like I said, I will be back, for sure. He won't let me give him away too easily he just needs a break then he'll be right back on my back it is as easy as a block button baby (laughs) 
but for more of us and you know the future episodes with a bunch of great guest hosts, uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Home Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? And uh, you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed uh, for over like 200 episodes before we even joined TFS. Uh, and nothing else, if uh, you can't support us on the Patreon, money can be tight, we get it totally cool, but the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because it gets us more visibility out there, gets more people into the cult of DEDB. Neither of us are good, as good-looking as Chris Hemsworth, so don't even think that. No, but we will dance the Deep Purple, and it will very much upset you. Yeah, we're like if John Hamm ate Chris Hemsworth, and then got a really <laughs> bad tan and an acid peel. <laughs> I mean, bad tan, I don't know if that really, like, if your tan completely left your body, like, it just jumped off. Your tan makes you opaque. That's us. Uh, Well, Adam, uh, it's time now we did the picking for next week's episode, which we do this at the end of every episode. Uh, Adam and I uh, have, you know, either two good or two bad picks. We switch up on the quality for that, and uh, we assign those numbers between 1 and 10, so uh, usually when the two of us are here, it'll uh, be one person saying, I'm going to pick number six, and the other person will say, okay, that's close to number five, which is this particular choice, and thus that gets us our good and our bad pick. Though, uh, at least for, you know, this episode we still have now, uh, the Godfather rule is still in effect. Adam has a veto burning a hole in his back pocket. Adam and I got uh, vetoes to use at the end of, uh, back in our last anniversary in May, and uh, I've used mine already, where uh, I heard a particular choice, uh, and I have said, like, you know what, I don't want to cover that choice, and said, actually, I'll take the cannoli, and uh, so we went with uh, one choice instead of the other. Adam still has that veto he has to use by May, but I think we can safely say, Adam, that uh, that veto will be put on a shelf in your absence, and it'll be there waiting for you the moment you come back to potentially uh, get rid of another choice. Yeah, it's going to turn into a dry, stale cannoli. As opposed to, you know, it's been almost a year now, so it's not at all dry and still now, but the moment it goes on the shelf... It's still good. It's still good. It's still good, yes, for sure. But you might be able to use it uh, for my bad pick for uh, this upcoming episode that, um, you know, we'll be doing the picking for, uh, where uh, in honor of Magic Mike's Last Dance is coming out, uh, we're doing dance movies. So not just specifically musicals, but movies that are all about the arts of dance to some degree. And uh, you have the two good picks, I have the two bad picks. So, uh, Adam, uh-huh. you know, uh, for your two good picks, I'm going to pick number... eight. All right. At number eight, on the dot, I have a movie. Uh, it's a remake, but it's more of like a total reboot slash reimagining. Uh, from 2018, it is a remake of one of, if not my favorite uh, horror, definitely my favorite Italian horror film of all time. Uh, I have the uh, 2018 remake of Suspiria. Oh, Suspiria. Which we have uh, done and redos and we've talked about elsewhere and definitely off mic, but we've never really given its due. That is true, yeah, and it's one that came out in, within the lifetime of the show. It's one mm-hmm. that I've been curious to, to talk about for sure, yeah. Definitely down for some uh, Suspiria 2018. Especially that's a movie, unlike the original, that does take place as dance studio but has a little dancing. Uh, this one's got a lot more dancing in it. A lot of dancing. And really creepy but well-choreographed dancing. Yes. But what was your other choice, Adam? The first Magic Mike. And number two. 
I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's only one problem. There's really only one major problem with that movie, and it's Alex Fetterfer. Yeah. Not good. When, when Kevin Nash out acts you, you know you got Yeah, right. When they ask Kevin Nash back for the sequel. Right. Not you. There's <laughs> a big problem. <laughs> uh, yes, but now, Adam, for my two bad picks, please pick a number between one and ten. I'm going to be a copycat. I'll also choose number eight. Oh, all right. Well, at number seven, I have a movie that um, is kind of mostly a joke just because of its title, but I can't wait to finally see it, especially having seen the original recently. Uh, the sequel is a sequel, too. I've got another canon film, Breakin' 2, Electric oh, Boogaloo. You've never seen Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo? I've never, I only am aware of the title. I've seen Breakin' just recently. Oh, you that's are fun. in for a treat. So I'm guessing you're not taking the cannoli based on that. No, hell no. No, 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 no. No way. Right. Uh, but on the other side of things, over at number one, I had um, a movie from uh, the auteur director Stuart Raffle behind Mac and Me. Um, and Tammy and the T-Rex, uh, his most recent film that apparently I've heard is like infamously even worse than most of his other things, Standing Ovation. I've never even heard of that. It's a, like a singing, dancing competition with a bunch of kids that apparently is awful. Oh, that's a big shocker. Especially From that his, pedigree, I know, yeah, it's so weird. Oeuvre. <laughs> What's it called? Standing Ovation? Standing Ovation. Wow, very few votes, and it's just sitting at a nice 3.0 on IMDb. <laughs> Standing ovation, yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah, buddy. Yes, uh, but we'll not be covering that. We'll be covering Break Into Electric Boogaloo and uh, the Suspiria <laughs> remake. A lot of fun will be had uh, next week uh, with our guest go-host replacement. Um, good luck, Adam. Have your fun. Thanks, sabbatical, and The window is open to you whenever you're gone. But until then, Adam... Right off into the sunset as I sit here on the burning El Royale. And I'm going to watch from a spaceport. Ugh.